Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, I need to grab my Bible here. Um, we are in the Gospel of John, and uh, so what I do is on Saturdays, I put together a slideshow when we're indoors, and so I bring my slides along with me up here uh, to make sure that we're Stacy and I are in sync with all the slides, and you never know what's going to happen. Uh, it's all good. But uh, So anyways, uh, as you've got your Bibles this morning, we are in John 16. And uh, we began this journey back in January, going through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And basically, uh, the long and the short of it is the disciples have been walking with Jesus for three, three and a half years um, as we've looked through uh, the Gospel of John in John 1 through 12. And it's been good. It's been a wonderful journey, miracles and healings and teaching, and, and Jesus has been doing all sorts of things. And people are like, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden we come to uh, John chapter 13, uh, and we get to what's known as the, uh, the farewell discourse. And it's kind of this, I'll, I'll just call it the long goodbye Everything's going really good. And then Jesus says in John chapter 13, hey guys, it's been a great road trip. It's been fun. I'm leaving. And the disciples are like, wait, you can't leave. This is not good. You're the Messiah. We're supposed to take over Rome. We're going to be ushering in the new kingdom of Israel. You can't leave. This is not how it ends. And Jesus says, it's not going to just end with me leaving but I'm actually going to die. And they're like, wait a minute, Jesus. You're the guy who stands out in front of the rest of us. And when things get hot, when things get uh, upside down, when things get crazy, you're the one that takes kind of all the blunt force. And they're like, this is not a good thing that you were leaving in this moment in time. So in John 14, Jesus says to the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, Believe also in me. So he's trying to console them. He's trying to encourage them as he's told them that he is leaving. And then we get to John 15. We talked about this a little bit last week and the week before. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, you know how a lot of people don't like me? A lot of people, in fact, hate me? Well, because I'm going away, they're also going to hate you because you are my followers. And the disciples are like, awesome. We left our fishing business for this. Why did we follow you? Are you kidding me, Jesus? He's like, yep, just be ready. And so if you were here last weekend, you know that it was kind of a message of warning. It was a message of don't be surprised when things get bad. But last weekend, Jesus, again, talked about this idea of the Holy Spirit the advocate who's going to come and help the disciples as things got hot, as things got difficult, as things got really, really challenging. The world is turned upside down for the disciples, and they're trying to figure out how to move forward, what to do, what is their next step. As I think about you this morning, as you've come into this place, I'm going to ask you the same question that the disciples are thinking about. What do you do when the world seems upside down. What do you do when all of a sudden you're coming along, humming along through life, and then all of a sudden you find yourself being an empty nester? 
All of a sudden, you're walking through life and there's a financial issue. Oh, didn't expect that. Going through life and all of a sudden you run into a relationship with someone and things are going really, really south. You're going through life and things at work are kind of humming along and you're like, oh, now what do I do? Or you're going through life doing what you do and you get a diagnosis, cancer diagnosis, whatever the diagnosis might be, something medical, and you're like, I didn't see that coming. What do you do when your world turns upside down? And so today we're going to continue this series, this idea of the upper room discourse, the farewell discourse. What do we do when the world turns upside down? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God who comes to us and meets us when our world turns upside down. God, as we step into the story, as the disciples are trying to figure out how to move forward, Jesus continues to speak to them, to encourage them. And yet it's a mixed bag because it's hard to follow you. And it's hard to live in the world in which we live because we have these things coming at us and we're trying to figure out how to move forward. And so, God, as we reflect on the words of John 16 this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I thought I'd start out this morning um, asking you a question. How many of you went through confirmation, uh, maybe as a child? Anybody go through confirmation okay? Yeah, a lot of you. Most of you went through confirmation, and you probably studied the Apostles' Creed, right? Remember the Apostles' Creed, studying the Apostles' Creed? We still go through the Apostles' Creed um, in our confirmation studies, and uh, it's, it's good. It, it, it probably looks different than when you were going through confirmation, but we still hit on the, the components of the creed. And the interesting thing is, um, after uh, we spent ta- about three years with the kids uh, talking through the Apostles' Creed in various ways, I get to sit down with them and have a conversation with them and say, hey, tell me about your faith in God, God the Father. And the kids nail it. They're just like, oh, God the Father, creator and you know, sustainer and the one who just kind of is watching over. And, and we all kind of get God the Father, Right. Tell me about God the Son. Tell me about Jesus. And they're like, oh, yeah, so he's that, that guy. And they tell me about the guy that walked on the earth and, you know, the New Testament and, and all that good stuff. And then I say, tell me about God the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I don't really get the Holy Spirit. And I find that's really true for most of us, even as adults. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God, the person of God. But I I would just say probably the most elusive person of God. I think the person of the Holy Spirit is really difficult to understand. And so the disciples are struggling to understand this whole idea of the Holy Spirit, much as we do today. You know, the Holy Spirit shows up in the New Testament 260 times, which ought to tell us that we should be paying attention to the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is going to continue today to explain and encourage the disciples in the midst of everything going sideways, even upside down, how the Holy, he is sending the Holy Spirit to come to help them, to guide them, to lead them 
in the days ahead. So let's look at John 16, beginning with verse 1. Jesus says, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. Maybe your Bible says so that you will not stumble. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills will think that they're offering a service to God. So don't be surprised if you're killed, right? Because they actually think that they are serving God when they do this. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning, because I was with you. But now that I am going to him who sent me, none of you asks, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief, because I have said these things. Things are bad. Jesus says things are really bad and they're gonna get worse. And so, of course, the disciples are upset. It says they are filled with grief. And so when these things come along and they start experiencing persecution, as they start experiencing hardship, as they start experiencing swords and threats, they're like, oh, yeah, Jesus told us that this was going to happen. And if you've studied the first century church and what happened to the early Christians, it was not good. In fact, their lives were really, really difficult to be a follower of Jesus in the first century. There's, in fact, a book called uh, Fox's Book of uh, Martyrs. And this book uh, was actually first published in the, in the 1500s. And it's stories, real-life stories, about martyrs, people who died for their faith. And I want to encourage you to pick it up, to read about it. All the suffering and the struggle and the hardship the people in the early church faced. For me, when I read a book like this, you, you might be thinking, well, that sounds depressing. That sounds horrible. I actually find reading a book like this very encouraging. Because when you're reading a book like this, it's really hard to feel sorry for yourself. I mean, you ever feel sorry for yourself? Man, I got this going on in my life. This relationship and this financial situation. Man, I got this health issue. Maybe just me. Anybody else ever feel sorry for yourself? One of the best things you can do is read a story about people who have suffered for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you that I don't feel sorry for myself a lot. I do sometimes. But I get the privilege of talking to you guys a lot. And you guys share your stories with me. And I always think to myself, man, they are a mess. I got nothing to complain about. In fact, some of you know that I, I spent a little bit of time over at Panera. And I, so, sometimes with you. So I know some of the employees over there, and I walk in, they're like, hey, Brian, what's going on? How's your day going? I'm like, I am good. I am so good. I've got this congregation of people who are a hot mess. Their lives are ridiculous. They face health challenges. They face uh, financial issues. They face relationships. And, and when the more you share your stories with me, I'm like, oh my goodness, I have no problems in my life. And I want to encourage you to do the same. 
is spend time talking with other people who have challenges as well. Spend time studying of the early church, the early Christians, what it meant to be a Jesus follower, you will just, all the weight of the world and those problems that you're facing, they will just shrink really fast and you're like, oh yeah, I don't have problems. I don't have problems like the early Christians had problems. See, in the first century, the early Christians experienced all sorts of, I'll just say, creative ways of torture. Some of them, like Jesus, were crucified on a cross. Some of them were just beheaded. Some of them uh, were, uh, they would pour um, molten lead over them, just, just lead, hot lead over their bodies. They experienced all sorts of different kinds of torture. Sometimes what they would do in the early, uh, in, in the early church in the first century is that they would take animal skins from animals and they would sew them on a Christian and then what they would do is they would have that person go out into an area where there were wild dogs. And of course, the wild dogs would just tear them apart. One of uh, Emperor Nero's favorite things to do was to take a Christian, tie him to a pole, pour pitch on them, and then light them on fire. And they were torches, human torches, lighting up the skies as he's watching his chariot races. You think you got problems? Try being a Christian in the first century. And certainly the disciples, those guys who hung out with Jesus, spent a lot of time with Jesus, they were not excluded from the challenges. Because Jesus was right. Things were going to get bad for them. Matthew, the disciple, he went off to Ethiopia, and he was killed. John, the disciple, he was put in boiled, boiling oil. Peter was hung on a cross upside down. James, one of the disciples of Jesus, was beheaded. The other James, he was, um, they carried him up to the top of the temple, and then they threw his body over, and he landed on the ground. And they weren't sure if he was dead or not because he, there he is laying there, and so they beat him with clubs. Bartholomew, another disciple, he was flayed. You ever flayed a fish before, taken the skin off of a fish? That's what they did to Bartholomew. Andrew was crucified. Thomas traveled off to India to share the gospel on the subcontinent of India, and he too was killed. They ran a spear through him. Why in the world would all of these disciples put up with such torture if this were just a myth? I mean, at some point in time, if the gospel were, a, if the person of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ were just a hoax, if it were just a myth, if it were just something made up, at least one person would have said, okay, you got us. Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. But that never happened. Every single one of the disciples said he rose from the grave. And they went to their death. They experienced extraordinary torture. And hundreds and hundreds of people lost their lives because they believed that Jesus rose from the grave, that they actually believed that Jesus said 
who he was. So this is the context for what's going on. Jesus is getting them ready. And you might be thinking, well, how did they do it? How did they live such faithful lives in the midst of so much persecution, so much suffering, such horrible ways to be executed? John 16, uh, beginning with, uh, continuing with verse 7. Jesus says, but very truly I tell you, for it is your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we talked a little bit about the advocate last week. The idea of the advocate. Maybe your translation says the helper or the counselor, the intercessor, the mediator. The one who's going to help get you through all this. Anybody remember what the Greek word is? We, we had the, we talk, I, I introduced you guys or taught you guys some Greek last week. Remember what the Greek word for the advocate is? Paraclete. You guys watched football this week, didn't you? Every single one of you are like, oh yeah, the paraclete. The pair of cleats. The one who keeps us stable on the field from slipping and falling. And Jesus says that the paraclete, the advocate, the counselor, the one who comes, he's not just going to come and walk alongside you and lead you and guide you, but he is going to be inside of you every step of the way. And so we ask ourselves, well, how does this all work? How does the Holy Spirit move in us? And so Jesus is going to explain this, uh, verse 8. When the, the advocate, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And the first thing I want to just kind of pull out of that text is, is this idea that the, the paraclete, the advocate, the, the Holy Spirit is the one who proves. This idea of proving is convincing convicting or confirming. And the image that I have in mind is, is a courtroom scene. And it's the lawyer. The lawyer who is standing there trying to convince the jury right and wrong, whatever is going on. Not the person who has been charged. That, they don't do that. It's the advocate who does that. And I think oftentimes in our lives, we think that we're supposed to convince other people, that we're supposed to uh, help other people understand, to, we want to help other people actually believe in God. Jesus says, that's the role of the Holy Spirit. Hey, disciples, that's not your job. That's not your role. You can't do that. That's the role and the job of the Holy Spirit, to convince people, to convict people, to confirm to people to follow Jesus. How else can we explain that first Pentecost? On the day of Pentecost, there's Peter. Everybody's gathered together. They're just kind of hanging out. Remember Peter, the guy who denied Jesus three times just before he goes to the cross? Same guy, Peter. Remember Peter the fisherman? Not been seminary trained. 
never had a class in homiletics, never preached a sermon before, but on the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit came, it says that Peter got up and he preached a sermon. You're thinking, okay, first sermon, how did he do? The Bible tells us 3,000 people surrendered their lives and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. How, how, how else could this happen? How else can we explain this? It was not the abilities and the talents of Peter, right? It was the Holy Spirit who convinced, who convicted, who proved who Jesus really is. So the first thing is, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will prove to the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I want to take these, uh, each one. First about sin, uh, John 9. About sin because people do not believe in me. And I think this is really interesting that he talks about sin and because people do not believe in me. Jesus is talking about a very specific kind of sin. It's the sin of disbelief, the sin of unbelief, which is kind of interesting because I don't know about you, but I don't normally think of, of sin as, uh, 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 of unbelief being a sin. You know, what, oftentimes when we hear someone who doesn't believe, it's, a, it's almost a badge of honor, right? I don't believe like you believe because I can take care of myself. I don't believe because, you know, you need a crutch. You need to believe in a God because you're struggling getting through life. And we're just like, oh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not a believer in Jesus. I, I'm not a believer in organized religion. I'm not a believer in, in all that stuff, right? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you, maybe you think that. I don't know. But Jesus actually calls this a sin, this idea of unbelief, a sin, as I thought about this this week, I think this is one of the worst kinds of sins that we can commit or experience because this, this unbelief, it, it, it separates us from God. So it doesn't matter whatever any other sins in your life are. If you don't believe in God, you will always be separated from God because sin sits there over and over and over. And no matter what's going on in your life, whatever sin it might be, if you don't believe in God, if you are living in unbelief, you're not going to bring that sin to God and that it will continue to keep you separated from God. Let me put it this way. If you don't recognize that you need to be saved, you're not going to go looking for a Savior, right? Because if you got it all together, you don't, why would you need a Savior? Many years ago, I was 21 years old. I went on a five-week mission trip to Kenya, and I traveled around with a group of college students. And after several weeks of traveling around Kenya with these uh, uh, Kenyan pastors and church people, uh, one evening uh, we were gathered together uh, around dinner, and I looked at one of the Kenyan pastors at least twice my age, and I was 21. I was a college student, so I knew stuff, right? So I just figured it was my time to like speak some truth, speak some wisdom into this Kenyan pastor's life. I said, hey, it must be really difficult to be a pastor and proclaim Jesus here in Kenya. 
And in my mind, I was thinking about poverty. I was thinking about lack of resources. I was thinking about the hardships that they have to live in day in and day out. And I'm like, oh, it must be so difficult to be a pastor here in Kenya. And he didn't blink an eye. And he said to me, well, it must be impossible to proclaim the gospel there in America. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, here's the deal. You guys have so much. You live in the land of abundance. And the gospel requires us to surrender all. It must be really difficult for you Americans to surrender all because you've got so much. Looking back, I think he was right. And I think this is some of the reason why the church in America struggles today. It's because we've got so much. And the gospel calls us to surrender all. You know, oftentimes we, we talk about the, the gospel being the good news, right? The good news this, the good news that. Isn't the good news good? I think most Americans, when they hear about the good news, it's not good. Because the good news actually begins with your surrender. And so when we talk about the good news, what people hear is bad news. If you want to follow Jesus, you got to surrender. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Where's the good news in that? He's died for you. And he's invited you into a relationship with you. And he wants to walk with you. And you can be with, when you surrender your life, you get to be with God for all eternity. I just want to skip to the end. I just want to get to the good part where I get to spend all of eternity with God. So there's this idea of unbelief and how it separates us at every level. Verse 10, Jesus continues about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me uh, no longer. Now, this idea of righteousness, I know we use this term in our vernacular uh, English language, but of course, it's also a term that we use in the church. It's a theological term, but I just thought we would approach this from kind of a, how do we use this word righteousness in everyday life? And so, According to Webster's Dictionary, righteousness characterized by uprightness or morality, morally right or justifiable, of course, it's got the word right in uh, righteousness, acting in an upright, moral way, virtuous. That's what righteousness is, and that's kind of how we think of righteousness, what the Bible is talking about, what Jesus is talking about throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that righteousness means a right standing before God. And so when we think about righteousness, we kind of go to school, right? We kind of put a grade level, a, a grade on it, A, B, C, D. So if I were to ask any of you, how are you in your righteousness? You'd be like, ah, probably a B, B plus. If you're really bad, ah, probably a C plus this week, right? I mean, this is kind of how we think. We tend to think about righteousness in terms of grading. How am I doing in my right acts before God? 
And see, the problem with this kind of righteous thinking or this, this way of thinking about righteousness is we tend to compare ourselves to this person or that person, right? Now, most of us are like, oh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not perfect, right? No, uh, well, we all say that. I'm not perfect, but I'm way better than my college roommate. Holy cow, I could tell you stories about my college roommate. Or, I'm not perfect, but... I got this coworker. Oh my goodness, she is a mess and she sins. And let me tell you about her sins. I'm not perfect, but I got this cousin and woo, he is living far from God. He has got this crazy, right? I mean, this is what we do. We just all sit and think about, yeah, I, I'm not perfect, but I can, I can name all sorts of people who are so much worse, worse than me. I'm probably a B. I'm a solid B. On Sunday after church, I'm a B plus, right? <laughs> we feel good about ourselves. This is how we do. We just go through life. We're just like, yeah, this is, we just, this is what righteousness looks like. We, we evaluate ourselves against other people. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And there he is. See of Galilee. Teaching the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he's, as he's teaching, and he's going through all this, he says, guys, I got a new grading scale for righteousness. Here's what it's going to look like. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the new scale. Don't worry about all those other people out there. Don't grade yourself next to them. New grading scale. It's a pass-fail be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's it. Don't look to people, look to God. How's your righteousness? Of course, we get an F. Because there is no A, B, C, D. It's just F. There's only one person who gets an A plus. His name is Jesus. The rest of us get an F. This is why in the Old Testament, when the prophet Isaiah, he had a vision of heaven. He had a vision of God. It's recorded in Isaiah 6. It goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He's got this vision, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. Uh, with two, they covered their feet, and with two, uh, they were flying, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is filled, is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was smelt, filled with smoke. It's like, I saw heaven, I saw God. And then this is what Isaiah writes, when he saw the perfect God. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I mean, Isaiah got it. He totally understands before a perfect and righteous, fully righteous God, woe to me and woe to you. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. As he convicts us, he convinces us, I'm in trouble, folks. Uh-oh. Now what? Now what do I do? I got an F. This is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. 
And the Holy Spirit helps us to understand where this leads, this conviction. Verse 11, and about judgment, because now the prince of this world now stands condemned. And so what the Holy Spirit does is convicts us about judgment. We live in a world where all people, every single person, will be judged. And I know we live in a day and time where people don't like that. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. He, he, he convicts you that the world is going to be judged, that you are going to be judged, that you are, at some point in time, you are going to stand before your maker, and you will be judged. And the Holy Spirit gets us to that place. Now, I want you to hear the good news in this. You don't judge. The Holy Spirit judges. Sometimes people, one of you will, uh, will be sitting at Panera having a cup of coffee, and you'll be sharing with me about some sinner in your life. And you'll ask me, is that person going to heaven? Or did that person go to heaven? I don't know. I'm not the judge. The Holy Spirit is. So we as Christians, we, I, 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 I can fall into that trap too. We want to judge, right? Not our job, not our role. Our job is to love people, to encourage people, to walk with people, to love and, and care for people. And the Holy Spirit's job, Holy Spirit's role is to judge. Verse 12, Jesus continues, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. And so what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, I, I know stuff, and I could try and tell you stuff, but you cannot understand the stuff I want to tell you. You are small in your mind. You are small in your capability of understanding all that I want to tell you. Have you ever had this experience with a child where you're going through a situation and, and, and the child's like, hey, mom, hey, dad, why is this going on like this? And they're just a child. Maybe they're a toddler. And you're like, well, it's complicated, right? They just can't understand because they're children. They can't understand all the complexities of what it means to be an adult. And so there we are. That's you and me, by the way. You can't, you can't lift it. You can't understand it. And I think even a better image is like going to the ocean and holding a cup of coffee or a, a cup of water, whatever it might be. That's you and me in the cup. That's our mind, that's our brain, that's our capacity for understanding the world. And the ocean, that is the mind of God. And oftentimes what I hear smart people will say to me, or maybe you've heard smart people say, well, I just need to understand more. Dude, you can't understand more. You just can't get it. I could try and tell you all day long. You could, God could try and tell you all day long. You're limited. You can't dump the ocean into your puny little brain. I mean, have you ever had that conversation with somebody who's so smart? Oh, if I could just know more stuff, then I would believe. Now, you couldn't handle it. You can't understand more. And this is what Jesus is saying. I have so much that he wants to say to us, but you can't bear it. Verse 13, but when, the, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. So the Holy Spirit guides us, and it's, it's a particularly um, a unique way of guiding uh, that Jesus is talking about here. And again, I want to go back to the Sermon on the Mount and this whole idea where Jesus is teaching about what it means to follow, be a disciple of him. And he uses these words in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When we hear this word meek and we think weak, right? Because it rhymes and we're just like, blessed are the meek. What in the world does that even mean? But this idea of meekness, it, um, the, the image I have for this and kind of the biblical, and I, I, it's not mine, it's, it's, it's from Scripture, this idea is, is of, a, of a, a powerful force. I'll just say a powerful animal like a horse. Now, a horse weighs about 1,500 pounds, the, the average horse. And so it's this, this powerful uh, animal. But in the mouth of a horse is this little bit, this little piece of metal. And that's what guides the horse. And so there's this idea of being, if you've ever been on a horse, you're guiding the horse, and there's incredible power in this 1,500-pound animal. And what is leading, what is guiding that animal is this little itty one-pound bit in its mouth. So it's this idea of great strength, but with gentleness. Extraordinary power but power that is contained, power that is used in such a way to gently move that horse. You just, you pull on the reins a little bit, right? And you go over this way, pull on the reins, go a little bit this way. You don't have to jerk on that thing, right? Just gently pull the rein. The horse knows what to do. It's way more powerful than you. And this is the idea, the imagery of, of, of meekness is that we trust in God. We trust in the Holy Spirit. And he, and, and he doesn't push us along. He doesn't force us along. He gently moves us and invites us to walk with him gently. And so what Jesus is explaining is this beautiful idea of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works together, powerful and yet gentle he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he uh, will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I've said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And so Jesus, again, is talking about this idea of Father and the Holy Spirit and he himself and their different roles and how they work together. He says, he will glorify me because that is, uh, is from me that it will receive what he will make known to you. And so what the Holy Spirit does with Jesus, his role is to glorify Jesus. We call this worship, right? The Holy Spirit invites all of us to worship Jesus. That's what this is all about, is worship. This is the role of of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes people will say, well, why don't we talk more about the Holy Spirit in the church, right? I mean, we spend so much time talking about Jesus, 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 right? Why can't we talk more about the Holy Spirit? Tongues of fire, you know, and all that stuff. I don't think the Holy Spirit wants us to talk about him. 
Because the role of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. See, if we were to like stage a play and we would say, okay, Holy Spirit, here's what you're going to do. The Holy Spirit would be like, nope, I'm in back. I'm a technician. I'm just going to hold the spotlight for the, main, for the main actor on the stage. And that main actor is who? The hero of the, of the stage is who? Jesus, yeah. It's always Jesus in church, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. I mean, the, the, the guy or the woman who's running that spotlight at the theater, they're not doing that because they want to draw attention to themselves. They're trying to draw attention to what's going on on stage. That's what we ought to be doing too. And this is why we don't spend a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. His job is to draw attention to Jesus. And so we come back to the question that we started with. What do you do when the world is upside down? Like the disciples' world was upside down. Everything changed. And Jesus says, you keep on. You press on. You keep inviting the Holy Spirit to shine the light on Jesus, on him. And when you get stuck, you keep looking to Jesus. You keep going. And you look to the Holy Spirit and invite the Holy Spirit to just keep focusing on Jesus and whatever is going on in your life. You know, it reminds me of Albert Einstein. Uh, when he was 15 years old, uh, he was going to school in Munich and he flunked out. He quit school at 15. His teachers are like, this guy is not interested in school at all. Later on, Albert Einstein applied to a polytechnical school. He flunked the entrance exam. Albert Einstein, a few years later, he was a tutor in a boarding house. He got fired. I mean, time after time, Albert Einstein, he was a flunky. He was a dropout. He couldn't do it. And so, but what did he do? You know what he did. He kept on, even in the midst of failure, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of struggle. Another guy by the name of Howard Carter. He was out in uh, Egypt, and he saw this pile of dirt. And he thought, there, there, I think there's something under this. And he was an academic, an archaeologist. And so he started digging around, and the other academics are like, leave it alone, there's nothing there. And Carter kept digging and digging, and then they started mocking him. They're like, there's nothing there. Pretty soon, Carter ran out of money. And it's just, he's just like kind of at the end of his rope. But what did he do? He kept going. He kept digging and digging until he discovered King Tut's tomb. This is how it is in our lives. We go through these hardships, these struggles. I le recently learned about a guy who uh, was uh, applied for and denied 27 different times to medical school, 27 times. In this book, he was writing about, you know what it's like to be rejected 10 times by medical school? 10 different medical schools, 20 different medical schools, 26 different medical... I mean, you feel like giving up, right? He said, they're on the 27th medical school. They're like, you're in. He's a doctor today. And this is what it's like in our lives. I, I don't know what motivated any of these three as examples or as illustrations, but what ought to motivate you to keep going in the midst of whatever hardship, whatever struggle, whatever financial, whatever relationship, whatever health situation you find yourself in, is to look to the Holy Spirit and He will point you to Jesus. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. He's going to advocate for you. And this, I think, is good news for us. Because it doesn't make it any easier. 
It just tells us, Jesus tells us that he is with us through whatever we're facing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are a God uh, who comes to us, who meets us when the world has turned upside down, when our life changes due to all sorts of circumstances. And so, God, we ask that you or your Holy Spirit might come and dwell among us, lead us and guide us, just as you guided and led the disciples so long ago, just as you guided and led and counseled and, and helped Christians throughout the ages. God, may we be people who look to you and receive your Holy Spirit, not just alongside us, but moving through us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.